0: Throughout the Old Testament, priests uh, of Israel played this vital role in the religious beliefs of the people. And they were really kind of representative of both the people to God and representative of God to the people. And so they were supposed to represent His holiness and His purity to the people. And at the same time, they had to represent the people by offering these sacrifices uh, before and to God. And so we see priests uh, really as kind of representing the whole lot more than just themselves, that they really do uh, kind of represent the entire Jewish system of belief and really the way that people related to and connected with God. And last week, uh, we introduced or re- were kind of reintroduced to this mysterious priest named Melchizedek. Right? And I told you last week, He talks about him in chapter 7, pretty much all of chapter 7 deals with him. Um, But last week, uh, I told you that Melchizedek is mentioned two other times in the Bible. One is in Genesis chapter 14, and the other one is in Psalms 110. And so in Genesis chapter 14 is where he meets Abraham, that part of that video that you saw on the mountain uh, that became the city of Jerusalem. And so the first part of Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, really deal with that encounter between uh, between Abraham and Melchizedek. It the significance of that. And if we continue on into chapter 7, which is where we're going to be today, chapter 7, verse 11 is where we're going to start, this focus shifts from that encounter to this other mention that we have in Psalm 110 where David mentions this guy who's coming, this priest that's coming in the order of Melchizedek a thousand years After Melchizedek shows up and is on the scene. And so, as we look at Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 11 this morning, uh, we're going to see that what he's telling them is there is this other priest that you need to pay attention to. And here's why you need to pay attention to him. So, I want you to join with me um, in reading Hebrews chapter 7. We'll start in verse 11 and we'll read down through verse 22 together. So, Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 11, says, If then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to appear and to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change in the law as well. For the one these things are spoken about belongs to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. Now it is, effective, or excuse me, now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah... And Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests in verse fifteen, and this became clear, or excuse me, this becomes clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on legal command concerning physical descendant, but based on the power of an indestructible life. For it has been testified, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable. For the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. None of this happened without an oath. For others became priests without an oath, but he became priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever." So Jesus had become a, the guarantee of a better covenant. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we thank you for all that you do for us and all you have done for us, God, and all that you have blessed us with. God, we thank you that even when we were so unworthy, you came chasing after us. God, even when we didn't deserve it and we still don't, God, You made a way for us to come back to You. God, this morning there are some of us sitting here and there are some of us that are joining us online and watching online. God, that we need to hear this sermon because we need this different priest in our life. God, there are some of us sitting here that don't need the new priest because we have it. We just need to enjoy and relish what He has done for us. And so God, with my heart, I pray that You speak this morning. God, through the words of your text, through the words that you have given me, God, I pray this morning for every heart and soul that is here in this place, God, that you be glorified. God, that you be magnified. God, that you be the one who perfects and the one who completes and the one who draws us to fulfillment and to wholeness. God, that some of us sitting in this room are so desperately searching for. God, wherever we have searched, whatever we have looked for and whatever we have turned to in the past, Father, God, I pray this morning that it becomes so evident that it is so insufficient to meet our greatest need, Father. And so, God, I pray that You speak. God, I pray that we listen. God, I pray that You give us wisdom and courage to obey, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As our founding fathers of the nation considered declaring independence from Israel, they were almost immediately faced with these two somewhat different but somewhat related questions. The first question was... How do we rally an army and how do we train an army to really go against the British army? The British army was probably the, the, one of the best armies, if not the best army uh, in the world at that time. So how did this group of colonies get a, a significant number of troops together to fight against one of the biggest, best armies in the world? So that was their first question they had to deal with. The second question that they were going to have to deal with is somewhat related to that because if you have a big army, if you have an army, uh, you have to train them and you have to pay them. You have to supply the needs of that army. So the second question kind of came into play of how are we going to structure ourselves and how are we going to govern ourselves, right? And so it comes into play kind of the the first and second because if you're going to govern yourself, you've got to pay this army. And so we know we don't want a king, but what do we want? How do we want to govern ourselves? How do we want our government to be structured? How can we structure a government that achieves the goal of independence, but also a a government that is strong enough to maintain the freedoms that we're getting ready to fight for or that we have fought for? And so the answer to the first question about raising an army really came to the fact that all the colonies of the states at those times had their own state militias. They had their own state armies. And so really it wasn't a problem of raising an army because you have 13 individual armies. The problem is we just need all 13 to join together. And so if we can rally them around this common cause, then that's great. Let's get them to stop fighting as separate units and really as one big unit. And so the answer to the second question came after several drafts and really a long debate, and the end product of months of debating led not to the Constitution that we know now, and not to the Constitution that we have now. For some of you that are history buffs, you probably know that it led to a completely different document called the Articles of Confederation. And the Articles of Confederation is actually where we get legally our name of the United States of America. And in the Articles of Confederation, it, quote, "...firmly established a friendship of states." For their common defense, the security of their liberties, and their mutual and general welfare. Right? And what the, uh, the Articles of Confederation did is it gave uh, permission or, or obligation to make a Congress. And in this Congress, every state got one vote. And every state legislator got to decide who was going to this Congress to cast their one vote. And in the Articles of Confederation, this Congress had the power to make treaties and alliances, They could make war and they could make peace. They could maintain an army and a navy. They could coin money and they could establish a postal service. But honestly, that was it. That was about all the power that that government and that Congress had. And so while this was a functional document and it worked great for rallying the army and, and getting to that, it wasn't perfect. It didn't form the perfect government in the way they were hoping to. You see, the Congress had the power to coin money, but it didn't have power to enforce taxes, and it really didn't have power to raise taxes or enforce the laws that it made. So it can make laws all day long, but it had no power to enforce those laws. And so if you have a young country that's kind of struggling with with debt from the Revolutionary War, you've got to raise money. And so the Congress had to have the ability to raise that money and to raise taxes and enforce those taxes. You see, there are also disputes that happened between the states that, honestly, Congress wasn't very well equipped to distinguish the difference of. They weren't very well equipped to uh, decide and settle those things. And, and so the other part of the articles was that many of the laws and changes to the document, they required unanimous consent for that to happen. Which honestly means that you had to get everybody all the 13 colonies to agree to any change that you wanted to make now the political climate has changed a little bit since then but i'm going to be honest with you they stood just about as much chance of getting 13 colonies to agree on everything as we do getting 50 states to agree on everything right it probably was not going to happen in those days just like it's not going to happen today so after about 10 years of congress approving the articles and really just six years after the articles were ratified uh, by the states this group meant in Philadelphia, and they met with the goal of we need to fix these documents. We need to fix the, the inadequacies of these documents. We need to fix the flaws that are in this document. And really, we need to fix what's happening because these articles are a problem. And so what they really found was as they started digging into this, they started debating all this stuff, what they found was these articles honestly were inadequate for building and maintaining a national government. That There was no way that this document was going to allow them to form the more perfect union that they'd set out to do. And so what they decided to do was instead of constantly trying to fix these documents, we just need to set these documents aside. We just need to shift over and realize these are so inadequate, so insufficient, that nothing we can do is going to work to fix these. What we need to do is we need to start with something new. We need to start a new system and a new uh, structure. And so we need something that's totally new and totally different. So in September of 1787, they officially approved what we have now as the new Constitution of the United States of America. And so I tell you that not to give you a history lesson, even though there you go, you can count this if you're homeschooled, you can count you had history for the day. But I tell you that because the, what the founding fathers had to do in addressing the insufficiencies of the Articles of Confederation, is really what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get his readers to do in addressing the insufficiencies of the priesthood that they've been following. And he does it all throughout chapter 7. You see, what he's trying to get them to realize is there really is a need for a new priesthood. There really is this need not just to reform or not to, to just revise what we have. We really need something new and completely different. The inadequacies of the current priesthood cannot be fixed by just replacing the priest. You can't just put a new person in the same spot and expect everything to be fixed. What we need is a complete change of system. And I love the way he addresses this because he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't. It doesn't waste any time. He goes straight to the heart of the issue. And so, in verse eleven, he asked them this question, and, and is straight to the fundamental reason they need a new priesthood. so, look with me in verse eleven. He says, "If then perfection can, or excuse me, if then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood." "...for under the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron. So right off the bat, he, he points them back to this passage that we talked to just a little bit about in Psalm 110, actually verse 4 of Psalm 110. And he addresses it three different times in this little passage of Scripture in Hebrews. He addresses it here, he addresses it in verse 17, and he addresses it in verse 21. And, and that, that passage that was referenced in the video where David is writing this psalm, and he tells about this priest that's coming, and this priest that's going to be in the order of Melchizedek. And so the question that the writer of Hebrews is facing, and the question he's wanting his readers to face, is, listen, if the system we have now is perfect, if it can do everything, if it can, comply, com, if it can provide completion and wholeness to all of you, then why do we need another priest? Why is it that Ab- that Moses or excuse me, why is it that David would be talking about this other priest? Why is it that, that, that God would talk about this other priest? hundreds of years ago if what we have is sufficient then why are we talking about a replacement why are we talking about something different so really what he's trying to get them to do is realize that the reason that god is talking about a replacement in a different priest is because the system they are currently under is inadequate it is insufficient it is lacking something and it's inadequate for some reason now, for you and me sitting here 2,000 years later, we read this, this passage and we read this and we're like, oh, yeah, sure. Of course, the old priesthood was a problem. Of course, the old priesthood was infi- insufficient and, and, and incomplete. But I want you to, to back up for just a moment and I want you to kind of put yourself in the context of the people hearing this letter or receiving this letter for the very first time. These people, this is the system they had grown up with, this is the system that many of them. Their entire families were following. This is the system that, that they understood. And so, this is the system that they lived in and they breathed in. So, for them to hear this statement, this was shocking to them. For them to hear this statement, this was breathtaking to them because the priesthood to them and the laws to them, it wasn't just a once a week thing. It was pretty much an every day, every aspect of your life. And it, it governed everything from how you did business to the food that you ate to who you were allowed to, to marry. And it went even deeper than that because for them, the Levitical priesthood wasn't just about just rules necessarily, but it was really about how they related to God and how God related to them. It is their religion. It is their system of belief and and how they connect with God, and how God connects with them. And so I want you to understand that this is who they are. This is what they believe. And for them, the Levitical priesthood is the way they enjoy God's blessings, and the way they avoid His judgment and His wrath. And so for them to hear, you need something new. This is a hard pill for them to swallow. It's hard when somebody tells you that what you're following is insufficient. And that you need a new system, you need a new uh, uh, mechanism, you need a new way to relate to God. And it's never going to bring you to what you've been doing is never going to bring you to perfection or completion or fulfillment in God because it was never meant to do that. What you need is a new priesthood, and what you really need is a new and a different way to seek after God. Now, for us sitting here, like I said, we don't read that in the text, but you've got to realize that's what they're living in. But I want you to realize that some of us here, are living this exact same thing. You see, while we can read it in the ancient context, some of us are living out in a very modern context. We are following insufficient and inadequate priests each and every day. We just don't call them priests. We got lots of different names for them. Some of us call it church, some of us call it worship, some of us call it quiet time, some of us call it Bible study. Some of us call it spiritual discipline. Some of us call it um, giving or serving. Some of us call it spiritual or purity. And some of us call it um, uh, dating rules. Some of us call it following all the rules. Some of us might even call it prayer. Prayer. And all of these things, all this stuff that we're trying to do to relate to God and all this stuff that we're trying to do to earn His blessings and avoid His judgment and His wrath and all this stuff that we're trying to do and and maybe just maybe we can earn His attention and maybe just for a moment if we earn His attention by doing all this stuff then He'll listen to our prayers. And maybe, just maybe, if we do it the right way Or if we say the right thing, or in the right thing in prayers, or maybe if we just give a little more, or do a little more, then God will hear and He'll start answering our prayers. And if we're honest, we're too busy chasing completion and fulfillment from all these other things instead of pursuing God Himself. See, for some of us, this is a hard pill to swallow because it is good stuff that we're doing. It's honestly godly stuff that we are doing. It is stuff that we have thought and stuff that we have been taught our whole lives. This is what you need to be doing. But I'm sharing this out of love with you. That if this is what you've been taught and this is what you're doing, trying to pursue these things to get God's attention, you're never going to find completement. You're never going to find fulfillment. You're never going to be perfected in those things. And some of us sitting in this room, we know that. We know it because we've tried it for years and years and years and years, and we've come out on the other side just empty and hollow and incomplete. And we learned it the hard way. And for some of us sitting in this room right now, we are trying now. And you are sitting here and you're sitting here and you're going home and you're reading your Bible and you're praying and you're worshiping and you're doing all of these things and you think this is how you're going to relate to God. You think if you just try harder and work harder, then you're going to find this place, this fulfillment in God. And some of you are trying and trying and trying. But the truth is the more you try, the further you are from perfection, the further you are from completion, the further you are from fulfillment with God. And simply because the harder we work, the less fulfilling it becomes. And so for some of us, we're chasing, we're following these insufficient priests, and we don't call them priests, we can call them anything else. And I want to share with you that if that's you this morning, then hear me out of love. You don't need another 12-step program. You don't need a new devotional, and you don't need a new worship song. What you need is a new priest, and a new priesthood. What you need is a new way to connect with your Creator, and a new way to relate with Him. What you need is something that looks different than what you've been doing, not just more of the same. What you're looking for is something that goes beyond rules and laws, that can only be found. In a person. And it can only be found in this new priest that's in the order of Melchizedek and his name is Jesus. And he comes, as we work through this passage, to show you what this new priesthood looks like. And so the writer of Hebrews spends the rest of this section, verses 12 through 22, really showing you why you need this, not necessarily why you need this new priesthood, but what this new priesthood is going to do, why it looks different than the old priesthood. And the first thing he says about this new priesthood is this new priesthood is going to combine roles. This new priest is going to be able to serve in different capacities all at the same time, which is not something the current priest could do. I read this story this week that in 1975, a guy named Tim and his wife, they were traveling through Europe, and they found themselves, uh, while they were traveling through Europe, stranded on the side of the road with this old Fiat car that, that kept breaking down. And, and he kept trying to fix it. And Tim was a fairly handy guy, and he, he was fairly good with tools and, and mechanics and stuff like that. And so he always carried this scout knife, this Boy Scout knife that he'd had for years. He always carried that with him. And as he got out to fix his car, every single time that it broke down, this one time he just kept thinking, man, I wish I had a pair of pliers. If I just had a pair of pliers, this would be so much easier. If I just had a pair of pliers, I can make the repairs that I really need to make it to this. And so uh, later in the trip, he he kept on with his trip, and he he sketched out on a a piece of paper what he called a Boy Scout knife with pliers. And five years later, he was granted a patent for the first multi-purpose tool that we now know as the Leatherman Pocket Survival Tool. And he says, The goal was to create something that was not only durable, but provide you with a means to fix a variety of problems the concept was simple. Create a multi-tool that was not only withstand the test of time, but could feasibly allow you to perform basic tasks like simple car repairs, home improvement, and job fixes, excuse me, and on-the-job fixes, or just have a multi-purpose tool or device on hand when you wanted to go camping. Now, I know many of you have these tools. Many of you carry them with you all the time on a daily basis. You use them on a daily basis and the reason they are so useful is because they have so many things that you can use them for. They are really this all in one kind of thing. I mean, you've got pliers, you've got screwdrivers, you've got these little mini saws and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think I want to try to cut down a tree with that little saw, but in in an emergency situation, you could at least get some twigs. You could at least get maybe some little limbs or something. You could even fire your fingernails which I always thought was the funniest part of that whole multi-purpose tool. You even have a fingernail file in there that you can do that with. And you don't have to carry all these different tools with you. You only had to carry one. Because this one tool served all these different purposes. And that's the point that the writer is making, not about this tool, but really about the priesthood of Jesus and why it's superior to the current priest of Israel, is because Jesus really is this all-in-one priest. He is both the priest and the king like Melchizedek was. And so if you look with me in verse 12, he makes this connection. And he says in verse 12, For when there is a change in priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. Meaning that the law of Moses was pretty clear that only the descendants of the tribe of Levi could serve as priests. And we're going to talk more about that in just a minute uh, because that had to change. Then he goes on in verse 13 and explains why. In verse 13 he says, For the one these things are speaking about belongs to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar, right? So the one that David was talking about in Psalm 110 is what he's saying here. The one that David's been talking about and sharing with us about, he he doesn't belong to the tribe of Levi. He belongs to a different tribe. And verse 14 tells us which tribe it was. And so in verse 14, now it's evident that our Lord came from Judah. And Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. You see, Judah was not the tribe of priests. Judah was the tribe of... Of kings. kings who came through the line of David had to come through the tribe of Judah, not through the tribe of Levi. Right? And so you're sitting here like, what in the world does that have to do with him? Why is that important? Because if you're wanting to model a priest after Melchizedek, you have to remember what we know about Melchizedek. See, in chapter 7, the very first verse introduces us, we talked about last week, introduces us to Melchizedek as the king of Salem and a priest to the Most High God. He is both king and priest at the same time. He is both to protect the kingdom and the one from the outside forces, and he protects the kingdom from the inside moral decay. You see, in the time of Israel, those two roles were very separate. You had a king who perfected and, and protected the kingdom from the outside, but you had the priest whose job was to protect it from moral decay on the inside. And now in Christ, you have the same one being able to do both. You have one who is king and priest. You have one who is protecting the kingdom of God from the outside forces, but also protecting the kingdom of God from the inside from moral decay. You have the one who has the ultimate authority over his kingdom but the one who also represents the one who has ultimate authority over all kingdoms. You have the one whose job it is to keep the peace and maintain the peace, but you also have the one who can bring peace in the very beginning because of the sacrifice to God. You see, this is often where our picture of Jesus falls short because we are all about Jesus' sacrifice. There, there There's multiple messages and multiple pastors and and multiple churches you can go to, and they'll tell you about the sacrifice of Jesus. They'll tell you about the love of Jesus. But very rarely do all of them tell you the full story because the full story is that Jesus is both king and priest, means he is both ruler and he is priest, which means we don't get to have the sacrifice without the ruling and reigning in our life. We don't get to to claim his sacrifice without claiming his complete justification or jurisdiction over every aspect of our life. We don't get to accept His atonement without accepting His authority in our life and over our life choices. We don't get to pick and choose one or the other. We get both. And the kingdom and the priesthood of Jesus Christ is both. We don't get to pick and choose. If you're going to choose one, you have to take the other with it. He is both priest and king, and there is no longer a separation between those two. So if you're going to accept Him as Savior, you've got to accept Him as Lord as well. If you're going to accept Him as a sacrifice, you've got to accept Him as king and Lord of your life as well. See, there's a second difference between the current priesthood and the priest of of Christ and the priesthood of Christ, and it's simply this, that the priesthood of Christ is based on works and choices, not lineage. Right? And so one of the struggles of the priesthood of Israel uh, is, is the fact that it was based on who your family was. Right? In fact, there were only two requirements for anybody that wanted to serve as priest. One, you had to be born into the right family. Okay, so the only way that you could become a priest in the nation of Israel is if you were born as a descendant of Aaron, which means your grandfather was a descendant of Aaron, your father was a descendant of Aaron, your great-great grandfather was a descendant of Aaron. And so the first requirement, the biggest requirement, was simply that you had to be born in the right family. If you couldn't trace your family line directly back to Aaron, you were not going to be a priest. Okay, so rule number one: you had to be in the line of, of, of Le- or in the tribe of Levi and you had to be in the line of Aaron, which automatically made you in the tribe of Levi. The second only requirement was that you could not have any physical defects. Okay? And so he talks about this in Leviticus chapter 21, that according to this, you couldn't have any physical defects, meaning that a person could not be blind, they could not be lame, they could not be facially disfigured or disformed, you could not have a broken foot or a broken hand, you could not be a hunchback, or you could not be a dwarf. And he lists these other things. Now, before you make your short jokes, medically, a dwarf is someone who is under 4 foot 10 inches. So just so we're clear, I'm not trying to be an Old Testament priest, but I would still qualify. Okay, By I got a few inches that I would still qualify that I could be a priest. Right? But that was really it. That, that was all the requirements that there were to be a priest. You had to be born in the right family line, or you, and you had to be there with no physical defects as described in Leviticus 21. And so Warren Wearsby is a great commentator, and he points to this problem. He says that at no point was the person's moral or spiritual fitness ever examined as a requirement to serve as priest. As long as you came from the right tribe, you were born in the right family, and you met the right physical requirements, you were in. No moral test, no spiritual test, family lineage, and no defects. That was it. And so you can imagine that if the only requirements for any position was you had to be born to a certain family and you couldn't have a physical defect, you can imagine that may lead to somebody being in the priesthood who might not should be in the priesthood. They might have some priests that are not moral in their character or upright in their behavior. In fact, we have examples throughout the Old Testament of some priests that are lying and honestly taking advantage of the people they're called to serve. You see, but all that changes with the priesthood of Christ. You see, with the priesthood of Christ, there's a bigger value on what you do and what you decide rather than where you come from. are not you look with me in verse 15 and verse 16. Verse 15 says, And this becomes clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. And so you'll remember last week we talked about him, and the fact that his parents and his genealogy are unknown to us. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know his genealogy. And so he didn't become a priest because of his parents. And that's not the important thing for him. Right? The writer goes on to tell us again in verse 16, who, Melchizedek, who did not become a priest based on the legal command concerning the physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. You see, the reason that Christ gets to become priest is not because he was born to the right family. In fact, according to the law, he was born to the wrong family, to the wrong tribe. But the reason that he gets to become priest is because of who he is and what he does. Because the power that he possesses, because he has an indestructible life. How does he have an indestructible life? Because he told us that he lays down his life and he has the power to lay down his life and take his life back. Therefore, his life is indestructible because he is the one who controls both life and death. And so his priesthood is not based on who his family is. It's based on the work that he did. And so here's the point for you and me today. And we're not worried about our tracing our lineage back to Aaron for most of us. But here's the point I want to get out of this passage: that if Christ didn't become a priest because of who his parents were, then you don't become a Christian because of who your parents are either. Listen, you don't get to ride your parents or your grandparents' coattails into heaven. Just because your mom and your dad or your grandparents or whoever it was that raised you took you to church and they went to church every Sunday and maybe drug you along, you don't become a Christian through osmosis. And you don't become a Christian just because somebody took you to the right place and put you there all the time. You don't get to become a Christian because somebody else made a decision that they are going to follow Christ. You don't get to claim their salvation as your own. Your relationship to God is based on you and what you decide, not on what your parents decide, not on what your grandparents decide, not on anybody else in your family. It is you and what you alone decide. And so for some of us, that's fine. Because we've made that decision for ourselves. We're not counting on our parents to get into heaven. We're thankful that our parents brought us to church and and allowed us to share the gospel hear the gospel. We're thankful for that. But for parents sitting in here, I want you to hear me loud and clear. Your children are not getting to heaven because you made a decision to follow Christ. There is a great reason and a great need for you to pray for the salvation of your kids because they're not getting in on your coattails They're not getting in because you decide to follow Christ. There is no family line and lineage that's going to get you into heaven. The only thing that's going to do it is do you trust the one who has the indestructible life and that choice is up to you and you alone. No family member sitting in this room or in your family line can make that choice for you. And see, instead of their beliefs and their commitment to Christ, it is based solely, or excuse me, because of their beliefs and their commitment of Christ, this is the reason that He brings us a better hope that He has to offer us. You see, the writer of Hebrews makes this clear that the old priesthood fails. And where it fails, the priesthood of Christ is actually prevailing because it is able to bring us this better hope. Christ can do what the little vehicle priesthood cannot do. And it's the reason that we have this greatest hope that there is. I want you look with me in verse 18 and verse 19. Verse 18, he writes, For the previous command is annulled because it is weak and unprofitable and explains what that means in the first part of verse 19 in verse in the first part he says for the law perfected nothing why is the law weak and unprofitable why is all the works that we do why is all the good stuff that we try to do why is it weak and why is it unprofitable because it can't bring perfection It cannot bring completion. It cannot bring fulfillment. It cannot restore the wholeness, what is missing in your life. Follow all the rules that you want to and you'll still find yourself empty and apart from God. David Gusick, a great commentator that I read quite often, he puts it this way. He says, The law provides an excellent diagnosis for our sin problem, which is absolutely essential. But the law does not provide the cure for our sin problems. Let me put it to you this way. The law is a dentist that can tell you you have a cavity but can offer no feeling for that cavity. The law is an oncologist that can tell you straight face that you have cancer. Can tell you the type of cancer that you have yet offer no treatment for that cancer. The law is a forensic pathologist that can determine your cause of death but offer no hope of life and no chance of resurrection. You see, the law does a great job at pointing out what your sin is is it, it, but it cannot complete us. It cannot solve our sin problems. It cannot save our souls and it cannot give us the power over the sin. It points out our sins, but it can't do anything about our sins. And so with that, there is no hope in the law. But see, here's the beauty of it. That's not the end of the story. In fact, that's not even the end of the verse. In verse 19, he says, For the law perfected nothing but, and our whole World hangs on this. But a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Listen to me. If you are looking for hope, it doesn't come through the law. You'll never find it. You'll never find hope and assurance in this legalistic relationship with God. You'll never find completion and wholeness if you're following the rules and trying to do it better all on your own. In fact, the harder you try to do better, the further from better you become because the truth is better is not found in you and it's not found in me. The only better is found in the hope that He offers. It is only found in the one who allows us and makes a way for us to draw Near to God, it is not better in me; it is better in Him. It is a better hope that cannot depend on me. Why? Because I fail over and over and over again. It's a better hope, not because it's a law that depends on me failing and pointing out those things. It is a better hope because it simply relies on His grace and His mercy that God shows me and He shows you through the cross of Jesus Christ. The only hope is not in a law that points out your sin, but in a Christ who came to save you from your sins. It is the Christ who came to offer you completion and wholeness. It is the Christ who came to die on a cross to fix the problem and to start with, not just to point it out, but to replace the issue at hand. And so I want to finish with these words from Chuck Swindoll. He simply says, "...whereas the law was both weak and ineffective, grace is both effective and filled with assurance." We must never forget that it is grace, not law, which enables us to draw near to God. Rigid rules provide no access to God. Legalistic principles provide no security. Our security is in a Savior who fulfills the law for us. It is in our high priest, Jesus Christ, who not only tells us that we are weak and empty, in need of saving, but more importantly, it's in the one who actually saves us, strengthens us, fills us, with a power to trust Him and to obey Him. See, there are some of us sitting in this room this morning, and some of us that are watching online, that are probably in desperate need of a new priesthood. You're in desperate need of a priesthood that offers a more and better hope than rules to follow. You're in desperate need of a priesthood that brings us hope, that draws us near to God, because it's the only place that you're going to find perfection, the only place that you're going to find completeness, and the only place that you're going to find the fulfillment that you've been longing for. See, if that's you right now, then here in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And in just a moment, you're going to have an opportunity to be introduced to this priest. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And if you are here here this morning and you are desperate for a new priest, you're desperate for a new way to connect with a God that you are so distant from, and you have tried, and you have tried, and you have tried, and you have worked so hard, and you've fallen all the rules, and yet you are still not Feeling the completion. You're still not feeling the wholeness and the fulfillment. If you are here this morning and you're trying and you're trying and you're trying, then the words of the scripture is simply don't try any harder. Trust the one who's already done it. And so here in a moment we're gonna pray. And then we're gonna stand up and sing. And my challenge to you that if you are desperate for the one who can do what you could not do yourself, then I want to challenge you as we sing this song to you meet me at the foot of the cross. And now I want to introduce you to the better hope and the priest that will be able to perfect you. Let's pray together.